On this episode of The Mystery File, I'm going to talk about an unbelievable case out of Italy that has more twists than a Dan Brown thriller. On a sweltering afternoon in 1983, 15-year-old Emanuela Orlandi disappeared off the streets of Rome. Just a few weeks before, another girl vanished from the same area. Both mysterious disappearances are connected to the Vatican. Why would such a powerful institution kidnap two young, innocent girls? Emanuela was born on January 14, 1968 in Rome. Her father worked as a clerk at the Vatican, so the family lived in Vatican City and had Vatican citizenship. The Orlandis have lived in that sovereign city-state for over 100 years and served seven popes. Emanuela and her siblings spent many happy hours playing in the enchanting Vatican gardens as children. Pietro Orlandi said, It was like living in a village with the Pope as our protector. We felt we were in the safest place in the world. Emanuela had just finished her second year at a science high school in Rome. Three times a week, she had piano and flute lessons at a music school in the center of the city. The 15-year-old also sang in a church choir. On June 22nd, she got into an argument with her brother Pietro because he refused to give her a ride to the music school. Emanuela stormed out of the apartment and took the bus to Rome. Both a traffic warden and a police officer saw a slim, dark-haired man in his 30s approach a girl fitting Emanuela's description. After rehearsals, she called home and informed her sister that a man had offered her a ton of money to distribute Avon leaflets. A schoolmate named Maria later revealed that Emanuela told her she had a meeting and ran off. She was last seen getting into a green-colored BMW. When Emanuela didn't return home that night, a guilt-ridden Pietro searched the streets for her. The next day, Emanuela's sister, Natalina, went to file a police report, but they told her, don't worry, she's not even that beautiful. The police had the same attitude weeks before when the family of a girl named Mirella Gregori reported her missing. Mirella was born on October 7, 1967, in Rome, and was living with her sister and parents in the center of the city. Her father owned a bar. On May 7, 1983, the 16-year-old had just returned home from school when the intercom buzzed. She answered it and told her mother she was going downstairs to speak to her schoolmate, Alessandro, and would be right back. Her family never saw her again. Police believed that Mirella had run away and were reluctant to investigate but her family believed something bad happened to the young girl. The last person to see Mirella before she disappeared was a woman named Sonia DeVito. Her family owned the bar beneath the Gregori's apartment. Mirella confided to Sonia that she had a crush on Alessandro, but the boy had an alibi that day and claimed he hadn't even seen Mirella in months. Sonia told police that a few months before Mirella disappeared, she told her that a young blonde man had followed her after school 
and asked her to get into his car, which she refused to do. One day, the Gregorys received a call from a guy they believed was an American. He actually had Morella's brother-in-law write down a description of the clothes and shoes she was wearing the day she disappeared and simply hung up. In September 1983, the Gregorys received a letter from the American that said if Morella's mother wanted to see her again, she had to appeal to the Italian president to release Mehmet Ali Akça, a Turkish assassin who almost killed Pope John Paul II two years before. Morella's mother did just that, but Akça was not released. Meanwhile, the Orlandi family plastered flyers all over Rome with Emanuela's smiling face on it. On June 25th, they received a call from a guy named Pierluigi. He said he and his girlfriend met a dark-haired girl selling Avon cosmetics in Rome who fit Emanuela's description. But he said she gave her name as Barbara. Pierluigi disclosed details about Emanuela that were never released to the public, like the flute she was carrying. Days later, a guy who went by the name Mario called the Orlandis and told them that a girl resembling Emanuela was living with a couple. She and another girl also living there sold cosmetics and clothing. During the Pope's Sunday sermon in St. Peter's Square on July 3, 1983, he mentioned Emanuela and expressed hope that those responsible for her disappearance would return her. This was the first time the Orlandis learned that she had been kidnapped. On July 5th, the Orlandi family also received a call from a guy they thought was an American. He told Emanuela's father that Mario and Pierluigi were part of his group. Then the American played a short tape of a young girl who sounded like Emanuela. She gave the name of her school and grade. The kidnapper said Vatican officials would be in touch and hung up. The editor of a local newspaper also received a call. The male voice on the other end said, "We have Emanuela Orlandi. We will free her only when Mehmet Ali Akça, the papal attacker, is freed." Ali Akça was a hired gun and member of Turkish terrorist group Grey Wolves. He was serving a life sentence for shooting the pope as he rode past on the pope mobile. in St. Peter's Square in 1981. There's this conspiracy that he was acting on the orders of the KGB, who wanted to get rid of the anti-communist pope. The kidnappers gave the Italian authorities only 14 days to secure Ali Akça's release and sent them all over Rome to collect evidence that proved they kidnapped Emanuela. In a garbage bin by the parliament building, police found a copy of her music school ID. a receipt for school fees and a note in her handwriting that said with much affection your emanuela inside another bin was a photocopy of emanuela's music sheet reportedly a photocopy of her id was found on the altar of a chapel at leonardo da vinci airport on july 17 1983 the pope told the crowd of worshipers on st peter's square i can assure you We're doing everything possible to bring about a happy ending to this painful affair. The same day, Emanuela's kidnappers 
left a tape in a garbage bin of what sounded like a woman being tortured. One of the kidnappers called the Vatican's direct phone line and asked to speak to the Cardinal Secretary of State, Agostino Casseroli. But the Vatican refused to disclose the details of that call. Soon after, the kidnappers went silent. During the Pope's televised speech in September 1983 from his summer villa, he spoke about Emanuela and Morella and offered his forgiveness to Ali Akja. Throughout this whole time, Emanuela's father continued faithfully serving the Vatican. On Christmas Eve, the Pope himself visited the Orlandis in their home. The family was pleasantly surprised. After all, it's not every day that the Pope comes calling. He blamed the kidnapping on international terrorists and told the family he would do everything in his power to bring Emanuela home. The Pope also offered Emanuela's brother, Pietro, a job at the Vatican Bank, which he accepted. In the very drawn-out Netflix series, Vatican Girl, journalist Andrea Purgatori said the story of international terrorism did not make sense to him. He said a source in the Italian Secret Service told him that the kidnapping had nothing to do with terrorists, KGB, Ali Akcha, or Bulgarians. They were just red herrings to divert attention from some dark secret the Vatican is hiding. In December 1985, during the Pope's visit to a Rome parish, Mirella's mother pointed at one of the Pope's bodyguards and said that he came to the family's bar and chatted up the young girl. The man's name was Raul Benarelli. Raul admitted he knew Morella, but said he had nothing to do with her disappearance. In 2005, Pope John Paul died at the age of 84. He was later canonized as Pope St. John Paul II. Pietro said, I had always believed that the Pope would share the truth about my sister, but that hope died along with him. That same year, a news station received the tip to check the diamond-encrusted tomb of a notorious gangster named Enrico de Pérez, who was buried in a 7th-century basilica in Rome. The anonymous caller said that a cardinal named Ugo Poletti had authorized the burial to repay a favor. Enrico led a criminal organization called Banda della Magliana, which committed very unholy deeds like drug trafficking, kidnapping, and murder. In 1990, the 35-year-old was gunned down in Rome by arrival. Many Italians wondered what favor the gangster did for the Vatican that got him a final resting place next to princes and other revered figures. According to Italian newspaper La Stampa, the mafia had laundered large sums of money through Banco Ambrosiano, which the Vatican Bank had a stake in. Much of the ill-gotten funds had allegedly been borrowed by the Vatican to fund Solidarity, the anti-communist trade union in the Pope's native Poland. When the Vatican showed no signs of repaying the mafia's money, they retaliated in big ways. For example, in 1982, Ambrosiano President Roberto Kelvi was found hanging from London's Blackfriars Bridge with rocks and $16,000 cash stuffed in his pockets. A brick had been pushed into the zip of his pants. 
Allegedly, his murder was committed by members of the Sicilian Mafia. Journalist Andrea Purgatori believes that it was a message to the Vatican to give them back their money. Enrico supposedly put a stop to all the pressure put on the Vatican by the Mafia. In return for this mediation, he was guaranteed a spot in that sacred cemetery. Former Magliano gang member turned police informant Antonio Marcini said, Enrico had the most contact with the upper echelons of the Vatican and had business dealings with their bank and other Vatican financial institutions. Before Roberto Calvi turned up dead in London, he begged Pope John Paul to help save Banco Ambrosiano. In a typewritten letter, Calvi called the Pope the last hope to avoid the bank's crash and the catastrophic damages the Vatican would suffer as a consequence. Calvi asked the Pope for an audience with him to explain everything that had happened without his knowledge and mentioned the heavy burden of the mistakes made by the current and former representatives of the Vatican Bank. The banker also acknowledged his role in financing political religious organizations in the East and the West and entities in Latin America with the Vatican's assistance. He told the Pope that he had received offers of support on the condition he detailed the activities undertaken in the interests of the church. But he stated, I won't be blackmailed and I won't blackmail in return. I've always been loyal, even when it's most dangerous. Banco Ambrosiano ended up collapsing in 1982 with $1.4 billion in debt. The Italian authorities wanted to charge the president of the Vatican Bank, Archbishop Paul Marcinkus, as an accessory to fraudulent bankruptcy, but the Vatican protected him. Nicknamed the gorilla for his imposing stature, Marcinkus was born and raised in the Chicago area. He was a parish priest before moving to Rome to work for the Vatican Secretariat of State. In 1971, he was appointed president of the Vatican Bank, with no banking experience. Marcinkus also became director of the Ambrosiano branch in the Bahamas. In 1973, the U.S. Justice Department questioned him about his role in a counterfeit and stolen securities operation. Marcinkus denied any wrongdoing and was never prosecuted. In 1981, Pope John Paul promoted Marcinkus to archbishop and made him governor of Vatican City, even though he cost the institution a reported $30 million in the collapse of another bank in 1974. That same year, Roberto Calvi, nicknamed God's banker for his association with the Vatican, was charged with illegally exporting $27 million out of Italy and sentenced to four years in prison. The Vatican eventually agreed to pay $250 million in compensation to creditors of Ambrosiano. According to the Washington Post, Marcinkus later spoke about his role in funneling millions into the Polish anti-communist group Solidarity at Pope John Paul's request. Business Insider wrote that Marcinkus had an Italian intelligence agent convert $3.5 million in cash into pure gold, which was placed in a custom-built SUV before the loot was smuggled into Poland. 
Marcinka is reportedly associated with fraudsters and people who had close ties to the mafia, but he also had mobsters in his family and was supposedly related to Lucky Luciano. According to former mafia enforcer Anthony Raimondi, Pope John Paul I did not die of a heart attack in 1978, as the Vatican claimed. Anthony said Marcinkus got rid of the Pope because he was about to expose some financial misdeeds by the Vatican. He said, My cousin Cardinal Paul Marcinkus was head of the Vatican Bank and flew to New York to tell me that Pope John Paul I had to die and he needed my help. I was asked how to eliminate the Pope painlessly. I told them slip Valium into his tea so he would sleep soundly, then drip cyanide into his mouth. But I didn't even want to be in the room when they killed the Pope. That would buy me a one-way ticket to hell. Anthony claimed he watched as the Archbishop committed the ultimate sin. I stood outside with maybe a dozen other cardinals and priests, he exclaimed. People think the Cosa Nostra is dangerous, but some of those Vatican guys are more treacherous than the Mafia. A close associate of Marcinkus, named Mikhail Sindona, also met his maker by cyanide after he blabbed to a local newspaper about the Archbishop's shady dealings. Enrico de Pérez's girlfriend, Sabrina Minardi, made some shocking allegations of her own about Marcinkus. She told Italian investigators in 2008 that the Archbishop ordered the gangster to kidnap Emanuela to send a message to someone above them as part of a power gang. Sabrina said Emanuela was kept in a secret apartment inside the Vatican. After being abused at sin-filled parties involving senior Vatican figures, the poor girl was allegedly murdered by Enrico and disposed of in a cement mixture on the outskirts of Rome. Sabrina admitted to bringing five or six girls to Marcinkus. Could one of them have been the other missing girl, Mirella Gregori? The Vatican denounced the allegations made by the former drug addict and called her a dubious source. A few years ago, though, an outspoken Catholic priest proclaimed, the devil resides in the Vatican. Father Gabriel Amorth, who performed thousands of exorcisms, accused some Vatican officials of debauchery with young girls. He told La Stampa, a Vatican police officer acted as the recruiter of the girls. The network involved diplomatic personnel from a foreign embassy to the Holy See. I believe Emanuela ended up a victim of this circle. This was a crime with sexual motive, he revealed. The church's chief exorcist wrote in his book, Satan attacks priests and people who have consecrated themselves to God. By striking at a priest, it signifies dragging down to hell many other people. Think about all those priests who have muddied their vestments by sexually abusing minors. These acts are demonic. Can a girl disappear from somewhere so close to the Vatican? Sadly, yes. In 1999, a priest named Luigi Marinelli wrote a scandalous book called Gone with the Wind in the Vatican that you will definitely not find in the Vatican Library. It chronicled the unchristian activities of some Vatican clergy, like the satanic masses celebrated by hooded, half-naked participants. For years, 
Half of Italy believed Emanuela was buried in the tomb of her suspected killer, Enrico de Perez. After public pressure and a lot of international media attention, the Vatican finally allowed authorities to open the tomb in 2012. Only he was inside. Behind the wall of the tomb, they discovered 200 boxes of ancient bones. In 2013, the Orlandis thought they could finally get some answers about Emanuela's disappearance when a new pope was appointed. But after his first mass, Pope Francis told the family, Emanuela is in heaven. When Pietro responded, until there is proof, I live in hope that she's alive, and I hope you will help me find the truth. The Pope repeated, she's in heaven. Pietro tried to get an audience with him later on, but received no response from the Vatican. That same year, a guy named Marco Assetti called an Italian news station and instructed them to search the studio warehouse. Inside, they discovered a dusty case wrapped in old newspaper. They opened it and found a rusty flute. It's unknown if it belonged to Emanuela because there was no DNA on it. Marco claimed that he was the American kidnapper who taunted the two families. He said that he kidnapped Emanuela and Mirella on the orders of a group of Vatican priests and outsiders who wanted Ali Akhtar released to maintain good relations with Eastern countries. The girls were supposedly picked simply because of their nationalities. The secret group wanted to put pressure on the Vatican and the Italian government to get the militant released. Marco agreed to meet with Pietro on a TV show and answer some burning questions. Authorities later dismissed him as an attention-seeking fraud. In 2016, journalist and author Emiliano Fittipaldi got his hands on a 197-page document that I'm sure the Vatican didn't want any outsiders to see. It listed all the expenses for activities relating to citizen Emanuela Orlandi from 1983 until 1997. This included food, medical bills, and accommodation at a girls' boarding house in London run by the Catholic Church. Included with the bombshell document was a letter written by Cardinal Lorenzo Antonetti saying he would make a list of expenditures to support the departure from home of citizen Emanuela Orlandi. The final entry read, General activities and transfer to the Vatican City State with relative handling of the final procedures. Emiliano said, When I read that, I immediately thought she was dead and someone had brought her back home. He decided to investigate but the staff at the boarding house were just as tight-lipped as Vatican officials. As if this case couldn't get any stranger, the Orlandi's lawyer, Lawyer Shigro, received a letter in 2018 that said, if you want to find Emanuela, search where the angel is looking. Attached to the paper was a photo of an angel statue looking down at a grave. Laura eventually found the statue at an ancient cemetery inside the walls of Vatican City. Could Emanuela really be buried so close to the Vatican as so many people believe? In July 2019, the Vatican gave permission for authorities to open the 19th century tomb of a German princess. Just to be sure, they decided to check the adjacent one, which also belonged to a German princess. To everyone's surprise, the tombs were completely empty. In 2022, 
Italian Senator Carlo Calendi requested an inquiry into the disappearances of Emanuela and Mirella. After so many years of secrecy and silence, the Vatican chief prosecutor announced early 2023 that he will look into it. Hopefully these two families can finally get justice. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out the other in-depth episodes on this podcast. You won't believe some of the cases I've uncovered. 